Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Emergency Medical 101. Today is going to be a little bit different of an episode, uh, seeing how events have kind of played out a little bit weird for the past few months. I wanted to take a little bit of time and try to get all the information needed before this is something that we, you know, we talk about. So today we're going to be talking about what happened in Illinois. Uh, for those of you that don't know or haven't been watching the news, the company Lifestar, which is an ambulance company in Illinois, um, had two providers, Peter Cadigan and Peggy Finley, that essentially showed up to a patient um, and, for lack of a better term, just did everything in regards to killing the patient. Um, medical malpractice is probably going to be mentioned many times in this court case, and as far as I know now, it already has been brought up, but... The court case hasn't been finalized. They haven't actually officially had any sentencing or anything yet. So it's kind of hard to really claim all the details of the case at this time. The reason why this was brought up, uh, there was body cam footage that kind of showed the way that they treated this patient. Um, and his name is Earl Moore Jr. He was a 35-year-old. And the incident pretty much went like this. The crew responded to him. And they knew him from previous experiences before because he was going through alcohol detox this time when they responded out to him, he was hallucinating. So we're going to go over the body cam footage a little bit, just as far as what I saw um, and what you can see too. If you actually look online, it's actually out on a lot of news outlets right now. So it's pretty easy to find. So pretty much what happens um, in the first scene that you get from the body cam footage, you see Peggy, which is the paramedic on scene. Um, she initiates what seems to be like she's the primary uh, provider here. Um, and there was a kind of a cutoff in between, but you see her start to yell at the patient, get up, we're not doing this today, things like that, along with several other comments disregarding the patient's state. To put it in perspective, looking in as a provider, um, if it looks bad to us, it probably looks bad to the general public. So one thing we can say is when we look at this body cam footage, you can clearly say that the, the patient, Earl Moore Jr., is severely altered. He's minimally responsive to his surroundings. He's kind of rolling on the floor. It looks like he's a little bit in a delirious state. At minimum, you can say that this is not normal for a 35-year-old male. Now, given their previous history with the patient, I'm kind of led to believe that they probably were just a little biased and a little aggressive towards them because burnout is real. But at the same time, what they did ended up being pretty disgraceful to anybody that works in EMS, anybody that works in healthcare, anybody that works even near healthcare or people that work in the general public. So to give you a little bit of story, if you're not really too knowledgeable about alcohol, detoxing from alcohol, or even most drugs in general, but specifically we're going to, take a, we're going to talk about alcohol today. So when you detox from alcohol, the process is very rough. Um, for people that have severe drinking issues, they drink five to six a day, they drink a fifth a day, two-fifths a day, things like that. Detoxing from that, the first week to two weeks is probably the worst. Um, they have frequent seizures, they have tremors, they have nausea, vomiting, they have hallucinations or hallucinations, I can't talk today. They have anxiety, they start sweating really bad, and pretty much overall just cannot function as a normal person in society. So now knowing that information, what we see when we come in on this body cam footage is the providers don't really try to assess the patient at all. Um, as Peggy walks in, you see her pretty much yell at the patient right away, um, tell him to start getting up, things like that, like we mentioned before. She says, we're not going to do this today. She's had enough with today. You know, she's had a long day, blah, 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 whatever. And eventually it leads to them taking him to the stretcher. 
they do not assist the patient to the stretcher. They never did a primary assessment on him at all. And then to make matters worse, the police that were on scene actually had to escort the patient out. That's none of their job. They're there to help out, but that's not in their job description. And in this moment, you can kind of see that the police maybe wanted to say something about it, but just they don't know enough to say anything about it. But even to the blind eye, you can see that at minimum, something should have been done about the way that this patient was being treated. So cut to the second scene. Um, You can see them walking the patient out. And as they're bringing him out of the building, he's kind of lunked over. He's not really moving with them. It takes two officers and a third just to try to get him up off the floor. And two were pretty much dragging him with his feet behind him. To put in perspective, at no point when somebody is altered severely like that, should you be just dragging them upright. Um, It's unsafe for them. It's unsafe for you. It's poor body mechanics. And really, overall, it doesn't serve any purpose other than the fact that you just want to move them quickly. If it's an emergent move for somebody that's in a code, absolutely. But somebody that is hallucinating from a detox of some kind, it's not really the best way to approach it. So they get him out the door and you can see that Peter kind of leans over and helps take the patient from the officers. And they slam him on his front of his body onto the stretcher. He's laying at an angle And Peter picks him up from his back and slams him face down on the top of the stretcher. Now, anybody that works in EMS, anybody that works in healthcare in general can say without a glimmer of a doubt that there is no reason why a patient should be laying face down on a stretcher at all. So we're going to get into a diagnosis of what happened to Earl later on. Um, And this is pretty sad to think about that it happened like this. The worst part of this whole scenario is that This is probably not the first time a patient's been treated like this. To make matters worse, you know, he was hallucinating at this time, so he doesn't really have full control over his body. He doesn't really have full control over his breathing, his airway. He doesn't have control over himself in general. He's in a state of negative euphoria, I guess, if you want to use that as a term, Uh, because he's seeing things that aren't there. He's his mind is shooting in a lot of different directions. It's just it's a madness. Uh, People with true hallucinations that you see in the field are beyond belief. Um, And sometimes you kind of have to play into the scenario if they're alert enough to see you and see what's going on. And sometimes you don't have to. It's preferred not to, um, of course. But when they brought Earl outside, they threw him on his face pretty much. And then you can see them put the sheets on him and strap him down extremely tight on the stretcher. Uh, The funny part of the video, I guess if you want to consider it funny, um, is that as they were leaving, the officers even said, there's no way this patient is leaving, or there's no way he's getting out of that stretcher. There's no way he's getting out of that. I don't remember the exact terminology. I've watched the video a hundred times, but it's just you kind of check out by that point. Even with somebody that doesn't know healthcare, somebody that works for the police department, you can say that if they secured this man this tight, and he was on the front of his body where there's no way he could be able to control his breathing at all, and he's already in an altered state, there was no way that any care could have been provided for him. The worst part of the whole scenario is that the body cam footage caught EMS as they arrived. It saw them as they came in the door, and it went all the way until they took off with the patient. The worst part of this for me is that you can't argue that he was resisting. He was never combative in any way. And even whenever they were throwing him on the stretcher, his body just flopped almost like a fish. He, he was he was dead like. 
And at that point, as any provider, you should be focused on their airway, their mental status and things like that. You should be looking for things that you can solve in the field. Um, and at minimum, just secure them in. If you have somebody that's severely altered and they're fighting with you, then yes, you can use restraints. We can use soft restraints. We can have a police officer or another personnel ride with us for safety. There's other options and other mechanisms to try before ever putting somebody on their front. And even then, if they're that aggressive, you sedate the patient. You would never be in a position to where you have to do that. Um, and I think that was primarily what the argument they made in the first trial was, um, was that they were fearful that he was going to become combative. But like I said, realistically, we can handle that in the field. We see patients that are truly aggressive every single day. There was never really any time frames given about how long he was being transported to the hospital, um, but he did die shortly after being transferred into the ER's care. The receiving physician at the time determined that it was due to compression and positional asphyxia. So why is this important for us? You know, uh, this is something that I think about every single day and, you know, most of my coworkers can vouch for. I'm a firm believer in complacency kills. You know, we see all the time that providers are so burnt out, they work all these overdoses, then you go to a car accident, then you have a heart attack, and then you're working and you have no trucks available, and then something actually serious comes out, like a child choking or you know something like that, and you're taking somebody to the hospital for toe pain. Things like that cause burnout. But the issue that we say here is that this is just complacent. You know, There's a lot of things that people do when they believe that they're not going to get caught for it. And I think that this is one of those scenarios to where they saw this patient so many times that they believed it was okay to treat him like you would, let's say, a family member or somebody like that that you really just hate, you don't like, and that nobody has prying eyes on. And like I said before, and I'll say again, if this happened to him, most likely it's happened to other people. I mean, this is this is not a new occurrence. There's no way, shape, or form that you can believe somebody saying, you know, I've treated everybody to the best of my ability and that I love my job and I love my community, but then you go out and treat somebody like this in your community. There was many things that happened with this patient that you would deem life-threatening right away. The fact that he didn't have any motor sensory control whatsoever, the fact that he was already impaired so much so that he didn't really notice that you were there, and whenever he checked in to realize that you were there, he still was minimally responsive. You know, my mindset always goes to this. Whenever you have these recurring patients, most of them know you by name. They know how you interact with them, you know? Um, so whenever they showed up, there should have been some determining factor showing that he knew who they were, but he didn't, um, which is another thing that catches me off guard as a provider myself. In my area where I work, I frequently go out to a few patients and they know me by name. And it should be like that. If you see people multiple times, they should know you by name. They should trust in your care. They should trust in your process, your diagnosis, your assessment. But even when he was altered and slightly checking in and kind of responding here and there, there was no even symbol or sign showing that he knew who they were or that he was comfortable with interacting with them, which I found very odd given the scenario that they said that they saw him multiple times and they thought it was another episode of him acting like an asshole, for lack of better words. And regardless of the scenario, I find it strange that there was there was no real way of treating him. 
I didn't read the full report um, because I'm sure they're going to keep the medical record locked until the case is finalized and everything like that. But as far as I'm aware, this patient should have been in a position to where every side effect that he has will be mitigated on the truck or the majority of them. Like, yes, you're not going to fix the hallucinations, but if you're dehydrated because you're detoxing and that's the only thing you typically drink, then yeah, you give them fluids. If you start seizing, then yeah, you give them a benzo, you know, things like that. You, you're there to treat and mitigate the symptoms that are going to come out or the things that are going to come out from this condition that they have. Same thing as a patient going to dialysis and they pull too much off. When you show up, it's your job to treat that, replace that, things like that. In this scenario, I don't see any intention to do so. And that's what also kind of gets me or strikes me as a little strange. So in this position that they were in, they knew the history of the patient. They knew that he was in DTs before they arrived because they said they had seen him multiple times. So it is our responsibility to mitigate those issues, right? This is a medical condition. Um, And I preach this all the time with people that go out to overdose patients and they give them Narcan, they sign them out, they treat them like crap while they're there, blah, 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 you know, and they just get so sick and tired of it. But they're patients. They have something that is causing them ailment. You know, I know we don't take the Hippocratic Oath as uh, paramedics and EMTs and nurses and, you know, respiratory therapists, as you saw one in the news. We don't take an oath, but that doesn't mean that we didn't sign up for the job. And that doesn't mean that we didn't sign up for the job to provide the best care at possible. I mean, I I find it funny that you go to school for so many years and you, you don't actually care enough to do the job to the fullest of your ability. Let's talk about the patient and what actually our concerns are here. One, it's important to understand that when people are hallucinating, they're more likely to turn violent or more aggressive whenever they're being constricted. In this case, if you have a patient that you're claiming was hallucinating and could potentially harm you, the worst thing you could have done is try to constrict them heavily. And especially whenever you have people that can watch the body camera footage and see that that's not actually the case. And at minimum, that's why we use soft restraints, right? We're not restraining their whole body. We're not reducing their their air movement. We're not reducing their full body movement. We're just keeping them from being able to hurt themselves or hurt others. Does that mean that they're not going to hallucinate and tear their joints up and start to rotate their wrists and do crazy stuff to themselves? No, that's something that we have to sedate for whenever it gets to that point. But in this case and in this scenario, there was nothing to warrant that. And then because he's hallucinating, like we said before, he doesn't really have full control over his airway. Anybody that is severely altered, you cannot say definitively that they have control over their airway because it can shift and it can change any minute. Um, You see people all the time that are hallucinating from mushrooms or something like that. And, you know, they're getting chased by a fiery purple dragon and all of a sudden their heart beats too fast and they drop on the ground. They stop breathing. They get scared, you know, things like that. You can lose your respiratory drive or it can increase so much that it sends you, you know, into a heart attack. You can have a stroke because your blood pressure goes up so high. There's so many things that can happen from hallucinations. So in this patient's condition, it would have been the most appropriate to have him sitting upright on the stretcher and to monitor for changes in his condition, changes in his breathing rate. That would have been the most important thing for this patient. 
Hallucinations can be so serious that they can cause the increased heart rates. Like I said, they can cause the heart attacks. They can cause the increased respiratory drive. They can cause poor gas exchange because they're breathing so fast. So it's more important to understand, and it's more common that they hurt themselves in this state, especially with DTs. Most of them are not hurting you. They're in a position to where they're hurting themselves. And all of this had to have been taught to the responders at some point. They neglected to kind of realize that the potential risk and and they just became negligent. Um, this is basic treatment. You know, uh, this is the, <laughs> the issue is that a routine transport would have sufficed in this case. And that's and that's what I think really gets me to my core a little bit. You know, they monitored uh, or they could have, sorry, monitored with no interventions and most likely nothing would have caused harm to him at all. Let's say that they were 30 minutes from a hospital. He's been in that condition for a while now. Most likely doing nothing and just monitoring him for any changes would have been sufficient. Yes, if they're both paramedics, like it says in the news, then there might have been some more interventions they could have done to kind of help. But realistically, if they didn't want to do anything, a routine transport with universal patient care or BLS routine care, like most people have in their run reports, would have sufficed. So when they slammed him down the stretcher and restrict him tightly, um, you know, face down, he was in an altered state. The providers essentially killed him. I, I, I don't, you know, there's no way to justify it. And they killed this patient. There's no other claim that can really be made. And aside from claims that they were made from the providers, like the body cam footage, just it's not debatable, you know. Even people in the public can see what happened. And that's the thing that you have to worry about. Um, my current director, love him to death. He's a, he's a fantastic man. He says all the time that you never know who's watching. And that's very true. When you go out into the public, a lot of these smaller communities, when they see an ambulance drive by, a police car, a fire truck, they all come outside. They all record what's going on. I can't tell you how many times we've dropped off a patient or we ended up having to fly a patient out and we go and we set up a landing zone and there's people that record the whole thing. So it's important to know that you're always going to have cameras on you. So let's talk about positional asphyxia. This is what Earl Moore Jr. died from, unfortunately. And the thing that people have to consider, especially our providers, is that the condition does not dictate the outcome. Positional asphyxia is asphyxia, sorry, is common in EMS and in hospitals as well. This can be seen with like CHF patients that cannot lay down when they're sleeping or have to be sitting up at all times. If these patients are placed prone, then their chance of survival is minimal. Even with a normal state of mind and controlled breathing, being face down for anybody, it doesn't really help you. Your ventilations are reduced. You have compression causing your lungs to not be able to expand normally. We see positional asphyxia because we see these CHF patients, we see the COPD patients, and we just do not associate it with somebody that's having DTs or something like that because they don't have the fluid, right? The fluid is what you're always worried about, the fluid coming up, the fluid coming up, the fat. You know, you have 600-pound patients that have to sit upward. But anybody can have positional asphyxia. There's some people that can't lay certain ways because it doesn't, you know, doesn't work out. And so with him... It was compression-induced asphyxia. It's the same exact concept. It's just a prolonged time that's pretty much limiting breathing. Um, this is exactly what happens whenever people go uh, cave diving and things like that. As they're 
pushing through these small cracks and these small areas and things like that, they start to reduce the amount of one air that they have as they're going in further into the cave, but also they're reducing the amount of space that they can adequately ventilate. It's caused for poor oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange, and it happens and persists for so long that perfusion is very heavily affected. So cellular death begins to happen distally, and due to this, it's a slow and pretty painful death. This patient most likely already severely affected by the time they made it to the hospital. I mean, even 15, 20 minutes in somebody that has a perfect state of mind laying and being strapped down and being covered up with a blanket and things like that, they're going to be affected by the time they get to the hospital. Even even if it was five minutes away, if it was 10 minutes away, if it was 15 minutes away. And that's if you do not account for the time it takes to get the stretcher in, get the patient on the stretcher, get the patient to the ambulance, hook up the patient on the monitor, which I, I hope to God they at least did that much, and getting them to the hospital. Then the front passenger or the front driver gets out, helps the person take out the patient, they move them to the ER, and then move them over. There's at least five to ten minutes that's not accounted for in most of these transport times that we have to consider. So by the time they got him to the hospital, he was already severely affected. And I think it's important to know because, you know, we did an episode that was talking about patients in respiratory distress. Um, specifically, we talked about a little bit of CHF, a little bit of COPD, um, a little bit of emphysema, things like that that cause patients to not be able to adequately ventilate, not be able to have the good oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange. You know, this was a prime example of things that could have been prevented. And it's very rare, extremely, extremely rare for someone to die from DTs. You're more likely to die from severe alcohol intoxication than you are detoxification. Um, That's pretty much across the board. In my mind, when I first read this, um, of course, like everybody else, it kind of broke my heart a little bit. Um, And I wanted to go on and to read up on it more and I wanted to watch the video and then after I watched the video the first time I said to myself I was like this is this is awful but then I also told myself that you know what maybe there's something that happened that maybe I have to see um so I waited and then they came out with the extended body cam footage the extended footage is around 22 or 23 minutes long I believe And most of it is the police department, how they're treating it, which is their job. Um, I will say they did, they did a good job as far as to their knowledge. Um, You know, I I wish I could say that if it was some of the policemen that I've worked with, I I feel like it would have been a little bit different. Um, They didn't really know what was going on. And aside from telling EMS, hey, you know, don't treat them like that. They weren't going to be transporting them. So you can't hold them accountable for what happened. And at the end of the day, they helped the patient outside. They helped get him to the care. They called for EMS right away. You know, they didn't show up and just show and say, hey, you know, he drank or he didn't drink or something like that. And then they wrote up a report and left. You know, they didn't, they tried to not let him suffer. And then EMS came in. And as much as I would love to back up my brothers and sisters that work in this field, there was just nothing uh, there that really justified that. As I was watching it, Like I said, I was trying to find little bits and pieces that would have changed my mind that as a provider, I can look in and say, hey, you know, I understand that or I would have done this too or something like that. But really, there was nothing that I looked at that I I could say 
I could justify saying that I would do. Now, I'm not a perfect provider, so that's why I gave it some time uh, before we did an episode on it and talk about positional asphyxia a little bit. Um, I wanted to see what other providers had to say. I wanted to see the full video. I wanted to wait to see what Peggy Finley and Peter Cadigan had to say in court, and, and it just... It was just awful, you know. Um, so positional asphyxia, don't get blindsided by the illness. And I'll use that as a takeaway in this because I know we've had a little bit of depressing talk today. But don't use that as the general illness. It can happen to anybody in any scenario, specifically your patients that are altered. If you do not have your eyes on your patient, you know, your eyes on your patient is just as important as the monitor. Even if, and I want to believe to my core that they at least put him on, you know, an SPO2 monitor, or maybe they give him entitle, or maybe they did give him oxygen on the way. I, I don't believe that happened. Um, and there's really just nothing that could probably convince me otherwise. Um, so a little information. They are going to court again in April. Um, we're about three and a half months, almost four months away from whenever it happened. And they are going to go up for review uh, for bail, and then they are going to have their last hearing. Probably will not do a follow-up audio um, or podcast episode on it, because really, this is not going to go in their favor. But with that, that's pretty much everything I have for you guys today. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. If you liked it, if you have any comments, concerns, questions, or if you have any topics that you want us to cover here on Emergency Medical 101, just go ahead and reach out. Our email will be linked below, and you guys have a great day. Thank you so much.